0: Section 34. Europe and the Faith. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Europe and the Faith by Hilaire Belloc. Section 34. Chapter 9. Continued though the revolt was external to the foundations of europe to the ancient provinces of the empire yet an external consequence of that revolt arose within the ancient provinces it may be briefly told the wealthy took advantage within the heart of civilization itself of this external revolt against order for it is always to the advantage of the wealthy to deny general conceptions of right and wrong to question a popular philosophy and to weaken the drastic and immediate power of the human will, organized throughout the whole community. It is always in the nature of a great wealth to be insanely tempted, though it should know from active experience how little wealth can give, to push on to more and more domination over the bodies of men, and it can do so best by attacking fixed social restraints. The landed squires, then, and the great merchants, powerfully supported by the Jewish financial communities in the principal towns, felt that, within the Reformation, their opportunity had come. The largest fortune-holders, the nobles, the merchants of the ports, and local capitals, even in Gaul, that nucleus and stronghold of ordered human life, licked their lips. Everywhere in northern Italy, in southern Germany upon the Rhine, wherever wealth had congested in a few hands, the chance of breaking with the old morals was a most powerful appeal to the wealthy, and therefore throughout Europe, even in its most ancient seats of civilization, the outer barbarian had allies. These rich men, whose avarice betrayed Europe from within, had no excuse. Theirs was not any dumb, instinctive revolt like that of the outer Germanies, the outer Slavs, nor the neglected mountain valleys, against order and against clear thought, with all the hard consequences that clear thought brings. They were in no way subject to enthusiasm for the vaguer emotions roused by the gospel, or for the more turgid excitements derivable from scripture, and an uncorrected orgy of prophecy. They were on the make. The rich in Montpellier and Nimes, a knot of them in Rome itself, many in Milan, in Lyons, in Paris, enlisted intellectual aid for the revolt, flattered the atheism of the Renaissance, supported the strong, inflamed critics of clerical misliving, and even winked solemnly at the lunatic inspirations of obscure men and women filled with visions. They did all these things as though their objective was religious change, but their true object was money. One Group and one alone of the European nations was too recently filled with combat against vile non-Christian things to accept any parley with this anti-Christian turmoil. That unit was the Iberian peninsula. It is worthy of remark, especially on the part of those who realize that the sword fits the hand of the church, and that Catholicism is never more alive than when it is in arms. I say it is worthy of remark by these that Spain and Portugal through the very greatness of an experience still recent when the reformation broke, lost the chance of combat. There came indeed from Spain, but from the vast nation there, that weapon of steel, the Society of Jesus, which St. Ignatius formed, and which, surgical and military, saved the faith, and therefore Europe. But the Iberian Peninsula, rejecting as one whole and with contempt and with abhorrency, and rejecting rightly, any consideration of revolt, even among its rich men, thereby lost its opportunity for combat. It did not enjoy the religious wars which revivified France, and it may be urged that Spain would be the stronger today had it fallen to her task, as it did to the general populace of Gaul, to come to hand-grips with the Reformation at home, to test it, to know it, to dominate it, to bend the muscles upon it, and to re emerge triumphant from the struggle. I say then that there was present in the field against the Catholic Church a powerful ally for the reformers, and that ally was the body of immoral rich who hoped to profit by a general break in the popular organization of society. The atheism and the wealth, the luxury and the sensuality, the scholarship and aloofness of the Renaissance answered over the heads of the catholic populace the call of barbarism the iconoclasts of greed joined hands with the iconoclasts of blindness and rage and with the iconoclasts of academic pride nevertheless even with such allies barbarianism would have failed the reformation would today be but an historical episode without fruit europe would still be christendom had not there been added the decisive factor of all which was the separation of britain now how did britain go and why was the loss of britain of such capital importance the loss of britain was of such capital importance because britain alone of those who departed was roman and therefore capable of endurance and increase and why did britain fail that great ordeal it is a question harder to answer The province of britain was not a very great one in area or in numbers when the reformation broke out it was indeed very wealthy for its size as were the netherlands but its mere wealth does not account for the fundamental importance of the loss of britain to the faith in the sixteenth century the real point was that one and only one of the old roman provinces with their tradition of civilization letters persuasive power multiple soul, and one and only one went over to the barbaric enemy and gave that enemy its aid. That one was Britain, and the consequences of its defection was the perpetuation and extension of an increasingly evil division within the structure of the West. To say that Britain lost hold of tradition in the sixteenth century because Britain is Teutonic is to talk nonsense it is to explain a real problem by inventing unreal words. Britain is not Teutonic, nor does the word Teutonic itself mean anything definite. To say that Britain revolted, because the seeds of revolt were stronger in her than in any ancient province of Europe, is to know nothing of history. The seeds of revolt were in her, then as they were in every other community as they must be in every individual who may find any form of discipline a burden which he is tempted in a moment of disorder to lay down but to pretend that england and the lowlands of scotland to pretend that the province of britain in our general civilization was more ready for the change than the infected portions of southern gaul or the humming towns of northern italy or, the intense life of Hainault or Brabant is to show great ignorance of the European past. Well then, how did Britain break away? I beg the reader to pay especial attention to the next page or so. I believe it to be of capital value in explaining the general history of Europe, and I know it to be hardly ever told if told at all, told only in fragments. England went because of three things first her squires had already become too powerful in other words the economic power of a small class of wealthy men had grown on account of peculiar insular conditions greater than was healthy for the community secondly england was more than any other part of western europe save the batavian march footnote i mean belgium that frontier of roman influence upon the lower rhine which so happily held out for the faith and just preserved it a series of markets and of ports a place of very active cosmopolitan influence in which new opportunities for the corrupt new messages of the enthusiastic were frequent in the third place that curious phenomena on which i dwelt in the last chapter the superstitious attachment of citizens to the civil power to awe of and devotion to the monarch was exaggerated in england as nowhere else. Now put these three things together, especially the first and third, for the second was both of minor importance and more superficial, and you will appreciate why England fell. One small, too wealthy class, tainted with the atheism that always creeps into wealth, long and securely enjoyed, was beginning to possess too much of English land. It would take far too long to describe here what the process had been, it is true that the absolute monopoly of the soil the gripping and the strangling of the populace by landlords is a purely protestant development nothing of that kind had happened or would have been conceived of as possible in pre-reformation england but still something like a quarter of the land or a little less had already before the reformation got into the full possession of one small class which had also begun to encroach upon the judiciary in some measure to supplant the populace in local law-making and quite appreciably to supplant the king in central law-making, the end of section thirty four